All right, so good evening. Good evening. Uh, the week we've all been waiting for with Purim right around the corner. We have Megillah Esther today, which as I mentioned last week, I'm breaking my own order. That's, uh, that's fine. Breaking my own order to make sure that we do Megillah Esther before Purim actually happens. It's hard to believe it's only a couple of days away now. Uh, Megillah Esther, for me at least at Yeshiva University, is my 43rd semester teaching there now. Just gave my midterms, my last midterm today, and I have a little marking to do. But, you know, that's the way these things go. You just... It keeps on coming. It's the hardest book in the world to teach, Megillah Esther. Hardest, by far. It's very, very difficult. And I'll tell you why. When I teach hard things, like the book of Ezekiel or the book of Zechariah, there's no baggage in the room. Nobody's ever heard of these people before, and certainly nobody's ever studied them before. So I say, okay, good. Let's open up the text for the very first time for real. Thank, thank you so much. For reals. And let's try to make heads or tails out of it. And that works out great. You get to Megillah Esther, oh, is there baggage? From the time these kids were two, they were making puppets. They were doing plays. They were hearing the story in a certain way. They were reading children's books. And I don't know which yeshivot any of these people are from. I seldom even know what town they're from. And I, I deliberately never ask. I'm not interested. I want to just learn with them. And I'm not interested in who's in which program, who's... Let's learn Torah together and let's, let's do something productive, and it's great. Uh, Megillah Esther is one of those things where there's just a lot of baggage. In fact, one of the, it was both traumatic and so invigorating. I'm still excited about this story. My fourth semester at Yeshiva, so 39 semesters ago, I taught Megillah for the very first time. And so, ooh, was I excited. I prepared all summer. I, different, you know, there are different Megillah in there, but Esther was definitely going to be highlighted. And I had some fantastic material. I was so, I was, you know, you might have noticed I get excited about fantastic material. I did then also. And this was really, you know, all summer long. I was gearing them up, refining them, getting them ready, organized, all that good stuff. And another thing that you probably have learned about me is that a shiur is never something that you give and now you have it. A shiur is the best possible thing that you could present as of this minute, Knowing that the next minute, either you're going to ask a question, I'm going to have to change it for next time, or I'm going to read something and that'll change it. That's the way it goes. It's perpetually evolving. My notes go through so many recensions per week, it's crazy. And that's just the way that it's got to be. Because it's, got, it's always going to be better, and I always feel guilty. It's like, I know that next year, when I try to teach Esther, it'll be way better than whatever I can tell you now. And I feel guilty about that, but also, okay, too bad. It's not next year yet. By next year, it'll, we'll, we'll have that all set. So I was all psyched up, ready to roll. And so I was doing Megillat Root, I think, first that semester. I thought that was a good place to start. And then Esther was going to be next. And then I read one article mid-semester as I was still gobbling up whatever I could before actually getting on the air. And I read this one article that was 12, 14 pages long in Hebrew, a simple article that had just been published in the early 90s. And this was in the late 90s that I was teaching. So it all, you know, that all adds up. I read it a first time thought about it for a couple of minutes. I said, I better read that again. Read it again. And then I'm like, holy moly, he's right. And I went over to my computer and I had deleted my entire Esther file. <laughs> and then I came into my students, because I'm pretty transparent about these things, and I was then also saying, okay, we have a problem. I had all this material all rearing to go, but everything that I was about to teach you had zero basis whatsoever. So I can't give you that. But now I need to scramble, and we're going to all do this together. And by the next time around, I'll have my act together. And sure enough, that's exactly the way that it went. It was a fantastic discussion as we all tried to sort out what's really in the text and what really is not. And then by the next time, I already had new shiurim prepared that at least had a basis for them, which is great. 
part of the problem, part of the problem with that preface of, of reading the Megillah is trying to actually see what does the text teach. I'll ask you an, an easy question just to get the ball rolling on that one. Like, what's the spiritual state of the Jewish people during the Megillah through the Purim story? Bad, not great. Not good at all. What's What was wrong with them? Well, that's not a bad spiritual... It was sad, but I'm saying religiously, how were they? They were assimilated, weren't they? Assimilated. Very assimilated. Very assimilated, and good. So how do I... I mean, not good, terrible, but good for you. How do we... How do we, <laughs> how do we know? What, what, what indicates from the Megillah that they are assimilated? They were eating and drinking at the party. Any other terrible things that the Jews are doing during the Megillah? The names are um, not Jewish. The names are quite pagan. That is certainly true. Okay, good. Participating in the beauty contest. Participating in the beauty contest, right? In other words, there's things going on. And I think that's certainly what I was taught also. I was taught that the Jews were bad. Now, I'll tell you that this is one of the few, read it again, you'll see it on Saturday night and again on Sunday, read it again. This is one of the very few biblical books where the Jews are absolutely good. Absolutely. Read it again, you'll see for yourself. It is an unbelievably positive portrayal of the Jews. They are united. They listen to their leaders. Jews don't often listen to their leaders. Here Mordechai and Esther are asking them to do things and they all rally around them every single time. At the end, it's the Jews, not Mordechai and Esther, who invent the holiday of Purim. It's a collective effort on their part, and then Mordechai and Esther ratify it, and it becomes the holiday that we all know and love. They are obviously quite, you know, Mishloch Manot, all the mitzvot that we do. Okay, they did it. This incredible act of solidarity toward one another, toward their friends, toward the poor, making sure everybody felt part of it. They defended their lives, and even though they were permitted to plunder their enemies, that was the decree, Megillah three times over says they didn't take they didn't take a dime. They wanted it to be clear this was an act of absolute self defense. It wasn't a chance to get rich. All right, so why in the world do we think they're such a bad people? They're great. They're purely great. There's nothing negative about them at all. It's actually one of the most positive portrayals of the Jews in all of Tanakh in the entire Bible. Read the books of the prophets. Okay, then you get to see the negative stuff. There's lots of negative stuff, not in this book. So where does the negative baggage come from? One is the party. Right? Oh no, the Jews are eating and drinking and doing who knows what at Achashverosh's party at the beginning of the Megillah. You can read it again on Purim if you don't believe me. But uh, who went to the parties? Let's let's just break it all down here. Achashverosh had two parties in the first chapter. The first one was 180 days long, and who who was on the A list? The governors, the heads of how many Jews are there? Maybe one or two rows to that level in some state somewhere out there in one of the outer provinces. My guess is there are zero Jews in the first party at all. Okay. I certainly don't expect them. And even if some one or two are there, the Megillah doesn't care. It doesn't mention that at all. Okay, second party was for all the people of Shushan. Okay, Jews live in Shushan. Presumably, some Jews went to the party. But there's no mention at all about... What would be bad about that? If the White House invited us to a party, I think we'd all quit the shiur right now and get on a bus and go to the White House. And we'd make sure not to eat anything inappropriate. We'd make sure not to drink anything inappropriate or do any other things inappropriate. And we would go because the President of the United States invites you, you go. Right? Well, the King of Shushan, the King of the Persian Empire invites you to a party, you go. And just don't eat the non-kosher food. Eat the carrot sticks. 
Right? It's, it's, it, you can, you can find a way. We've all been there. So it's not the king's palace in Persia necessarily, but we've all had to do something like that, and it's fine. What's, and the Megillah, just to stress this point, doesn't mention Jews at the party at all. It's simply not its agenda. So to beat up on the poor Jews for being these terrible assimilationists, for eating and drinking and being merry and doing who knows what at this party, I can't tell you that they weren't doing all of these terrible things. They might have been. But the Megillah is not interested in that question at all. Okay, so that's point number one. Uh, another thing that people often beat up on the poor Jews for is that, oh, they all bowed to Haman with the exception of Mordechai. All right, so let's break that one down, just as long as we're on that subject. Who had to bow to Haman at all? In the Megillah, who bows to Haman? All the king's officers in the king's gate. A couple dozen people, a hundred people maybe, I doubt a hundred, probably much less. Okay, how many Jews are there? I don't know, maybe one or two others besides Mordechai, but maybe zero. And certainly not the Jews of Shushan. They're not involved in this. They're not officers in the king's gate. And certainly not any other Jew living far away. They never see Haman. So for all the flack that the poor Jews get, and again, elsewhere in Tanakh, they deserve a lot of flack. I'm not trying to stick up for them as an unequivocal thing, but in the Megillah itself, they're great. Not only that, here's the real kicker. Look at source number one. Who, who attests to their righteousness and, and, and faithfulness to the Torah better than anybody? Our good old not-so-friend Haman. Source one. Haman, how does he accuse the Jewish people? Haman then said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the other peoples in all the provinces of your realm, whose laws are different from those of any other people and who do not obey the king's laws. He's accusing us of being faithful to us, to the Torah. That's his problem with us. And so Midrash exploits that in source number two. Midrashic thought has somebody named Michael, one of the angels in the heavenly host. He is in charge of defending the people of Israel. So that's, he's going to star in this Midrash. For every charge, source two, for every charge which Haman brought against them below, Michael pleaded a defense for them above. He said, Sovereign of the universe, your sons are being accused not because they have worshipped idols, nor because they have shed blood, but because solely because they have kept your laws. Look what Haman is saying. He's accusing us of being faithful to the Torah. So here's a Midrash saying, oh, Michael at least has a good defense. He comes to God and says, look, all these biblical books, the Jews are accused for the worst possible sins. Idolatry usually at the top of the list, but other things too. Okay, so there's nothing in the Megillah that suggests that they're doing anything bad. There's lots of things that suggest that they're doing lots of good things. But here's one thing that I can agree with right away with what you were suggesting. And that is we don't know how religiously observant they were either. There, it's a purely positive portrayal, but I don't know how they keep Shabbat, Kashrut, if they're worshipping idols or not. I have no idea. The Mikilaj is just not interested in that question. Same thing with Mordechai and Esther. Their names are pagan. I always smile about this point. My son Mordechai is turning three next month. So he doesn't know much about the hero of Purim. He, that he'll learn about soon enough. So it's like an educational process. First you have to teach him about how proud he should be of his name. Because look at this great Mordechai in the Megillah. Then when he gets older, you have to say, by the way, Mordechai is derived from the Babylonian deity Marduk. It's a purely pagan name. And then it became a Jewish name thanks to the hero of the Megillah. Like this is a stage, first let's get to the Megillah part with him, and then we'll worry about the pagan origins of the name. But be that as it may, 
There's nothing bad about them having pagan names. People, Jews have had non-Jewish names throughout our history. Plenty of people have had that to this very day, and that's really fine. We continue as a very religious gesture to use the Jewish months. The Jewish months are just names of pagan deities, like Tammuz, give me a break. It's a biblical idol. We have no problem using these and adopting them as much. The Torah just says first month, second month, third month. It's so nice and neutral. No deities here. And we went ahead and adopted these pagan names for months. And so, and, but we think that that's fine. We, nobody had any objection to that. Quite to the contrary. We imported it. It wasn't even our original culture at all. So that's the story on that front. So I can tell you that the Jews are portrayed in a purely positive way. And I can tell you that I have no idea what their level of religious observance is. Okay, so far so good. Now, here's the part that you'll hopefully help me out with. And that is, so how many times is God's name mentioned in the whole Megillah? Zero. Why? Isn't that weird? It's a biblical book. Huh? God is very hidden. And by the way, that's probably one of the best answers ever given to that question, right? The whole point of this story is that God is behind the scenes. And that's important to understand that. You should know that in the Second Temple period, we the Jews wrote a translation of the whole Tanakh into Greek. We call it the Septuagint, colloquially. It's based on a story in the Talmud about 70 rabbis sitting in you know soundproof rooms and all coming up with exactly the same translation of the Torah. A miracle in its own right. Yeah. Well, funny you should mention that. Fun- oh, you're right. You're right, although it's as spirit of God as you can go, except there's one mistake in your sentence. And everybody makes this mistake. You should not feel bad. I don't feel bad. Good. You shouldn't feel bad. But it's astonishing, actually. You're actually calling attention to how astonishing this point is. The Jews fast. You're right. And every other place in Tanakh, whenever there's fasting, there's always prayer. Not here. Doesn't say prayer. Read it again. You have Saturday night coming up. Read extra careful. Mark all these things down. You will see there's no prayers in the Megillah. May I ask, to me, that even makes it more pure. Just totally, totally cleansing. Fasting is cleansing. And all that oxygen that goes into digestion is up in the, in the, in the brain area. I'm glad you find fasting such a positive experience. I, I find it really I, tough. I, <laughs> but, in, but, but in the meantime, be that as it may, be that as it may, that... It's important that there's no prayer mentioned alongside the fasting, because that just doesn't... It's, of course they should have been praying. Now, the, going back to our Second Temple Jews for a minute, when they were translating the whole Tanakh into Greek, uh, they also translated the book of Esther, and you should read it. Whether in the Greek, if you know Greek, I don't know it at all, but you could read a translation of that, that I've done. Uh, they just add a lot of stuff. Like, for example, Mordecai's prayer for this and that, and Esther's prayer before she goes into the throne room. God's name in the Greek translation of Armagillah appears over 50 times, 5-0. They make it into a biblical-sounding book. Because all the stuff that we would expect, the Jews have to pray, Mordecai has to pray, Esther has to pray. God should be in the narrative, like any other biblical book. It's all missing here. All right, so let's just add it. That's handy. That only calls attention to how strange this book is. The Jews are great, but we don't know their state of religious observance at all. By the way, it's weird also. There's nothing pagan in this book. I mean, the Persians were pagan people, but there's nothing about idolatry here. Anywhere. No names of any deities other than like Marduk hidden in Mordechai, but it's not about idols. Right? 
So we have to be alert to that. We have to be alert to the fact that the Torah is never mentioned. That even the holiday at the end, we treat it as a religious holiday because it is. But a pure atheist could celebrate Purim also and just be thankful that he's not dead either. Right? There's nothing specifically religious assigned to the holiday in the Megillah itself. It's very strange. All the other holidays, I think of them as very God-intensive because they are. Pesach, read the Torah, okay, God is all over the place. and the holiday, God is all over the place. That's normal to us. Purim is not normal. Right? The Jews are great. God is nowhere. I don't know anything about their religious state. And that brings us to the biggest question. The whole story turns on one event. Mordechai's refusal to bow to Haman. If Mordechai would have bowed, there's no story. Right? Instead, he doesn't bow. Haman gets really, really, really upset. It turns out that he is a sick, evil man who decides, A, to kill Mordechai, which actually makes sense because Mordechai is defying the king's law. That could be capital. But then Haman turns it into, I want to kill all the Jews, which Mordechai probably wasn't expecting to happen. We don't know that for sure, but I'm, I'm, I put my money on that one. And the rabbis throughout the ages have likewise put their money on that one. They can't believe that Mordechai would be willing to imperil the entire Jewish people over this principle. And one other side point, as long as we're in this neck of the woods, and then I'll ask the question. My picture of the story is kind of like what the artist's picture of the story is, which, you know, you have Haman walking down the courtyard and everybody's bowing and Mordechai is like, you know, some, you know, just standing and staring him down. That's probably the wrong picture. Haman had no idea that Mordechai was refusing to bow to him in the Megillah. And just read source number four. Mordechai presumably absented himself. He wasn't standing in Haman's face and refusing to bow. It sounds like Mordechai just wasn't there. At the king's courtiers in the palace gate, knelt and bowed low to the Haman, for such was the king's order concerning him. But Mordechai would not kneel or bow low. Then the king's courtiers who were in the palace gate said to Mordechai, why do you disobey the king's order? Now, as the guys who sat next to him in the row, they realized he wasn't there. And after a few days, you know, first day, okay, he's moving his car, second day, you know, whatever. Okay, but after like 10 days of this, okay, he's never here at 10 o'clock. Something's going on. So they ask him. Haman had no idea that this was going on. It's his buddies who are on to him. When they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman. If Mordechai is standing in Haman's face, nobody needs to tattletale, right? Haman would have noticed. Haman would have seen somebody standing up. It's like, wait a minute, what's wrong with this picture? I want to kill this guy. Right? That's not what was happening. Mordechai was absenting himself, presumably. And so after several days of the people asking Mordechai, what's going on here? Mordechai says, I'm not going to do it. Then they tell Haman. So now Haman is attentive. And that, that's when the story occurs. All right, so let me just ask you. I'm just going to ask it straight, and you better give me a good answer, because I've been baffled by this since 1997. So why doesn't Mordechai bow? What's wrong with bowing to Haman? It says he was a Jew. That's good. He was a Jew and a very fine Jew. Still, why not bow, yeah? If he's worshipping him, that would be a disaster. But, okay, so bow and don't worship him. Others might think he's Others might think he's worshiping. Okay, so this is already okay. So now we're moving somewhere else. You you could be right. Okay, yeah. There is such a midrash, but you you read the passage of what the text says. I have no idea why he's not bowing. Isn't that weird? The whole story turns on this. I would think the Megillah would have something to say. That I, I assume that it's not just a bad back. 
right? I assume that Mordechai is a principled reason for refusing to bow to Haman. And, you know, he's being celebrated for this. And boy, good Mordechai, great integrity over there. But why not? He's bowing to a king's official. Everybody's bowing to the king's high official. You're allowed to bow to a king. By the way, in Megillat Esther, just in chapter 8, when Esther wants to plead to Ahasuerus for mercy, that the Jews can defend themselves, she bows to Ahasuerus and nobody says boo. Why not? She's not worshipping him. She's showing proper respect to the emperor, even though it's her husband. She, doesn't, she knows better than that. She knows she better bow. That's what you do when you stand in front of Ahasuerus. Natana Navi, Nathan the prophet, bows in front of David. He's not worshiping him. He's a prophet. He knows what he's doing. You bow to the king because he's the king. Oh, so you're right, Elias, and that's why the Megillah even stresses people. Achashverosh is the one who issued a royal order. Bow to my number two guy. You're right. You're not bowing to Haman because he's Haman. You're bowing to Haman because the king said so. In other words, the king sees this as a sign of honor to the king. So you're exactly right. It's not that every officer in the palace gets a bow, right? But but Ahasuerus certainly can make this decree, and it's reasonable. Show respect to royalty. So what's wrong with him bowing? So it is such a glaring omission from the text. That's where Dr. Glazer comes in, following source number five. The Midrash in Esther Rabbah. Was Mordecai then looking for quarrels or disobedient to the king's command? Because all it says in the text is like, how come you're disobeying the king? And since the text gives zero reason for this, so the Midrash simply says, how can the text possibly be the whole story? It must be. The fact is that when Ahasuerus ordered that all should bow down to Haman, the latter fixed an idolatrous image on his breast for the purpose of making all bow down to an idol. What a religious man he was, that Haman. He loved his gods, whoever they were. And he took great satisfaction in people unwittingly bowing down to a statue that's affixed to him. Okay, that's just weird. But but leaving the fact that it's weird or not, I can't tell you how far away this is from the text in the story. It's not about idolatry at all. There's nothing about idolatry in our story. Again, Haman was a pagan. No doubt. Ahasuerus is a pagan. They're all pagans. Okay, fine. But it's not about bowing to idols. The story is not about that. So here's the good litmus test of how difficult of a question is. What's Ibn Ezra going to do? Rav Avraham Ibn Ezra, living in 12th century Spain, his whole trademark method of interpretation is, I don't like it when Midrashim impose things onto the text. I want to say, I want to work from the text from within, and let's see what's actually here. So what's he going to do in his commentary on these verses where there's nothing said about Mordechai's refusal to bow? So what Ibn Ezra does, the, the ultimate Pashtan, the ultimate one who's committed to deriving the message from the text, quotes this Midrash and says this must be true. Because for the life of him, he can't understand why else Mordechai would refuse to bow. So Ibn Ezra breaks his cardinal rule of, hey, if a Midrash is not in the text, I'm not going to accept it as part of the text. But here he just says, that Mordechai obviously has a principled reason for not doing this. And it must be related to idolatry. Okay, so that shows how big of a problem we have, because it's still not in the text. Even Ezra says it's, that has to be the right answer, but the story is simply not about idolatry at all. So it's kind of weird. How can we not know why Mordechai refuses to bow? Because the whole story rides on that. And if we don't know why he's refusing to bow, then how do we understand the story? So let's wrap up how little we know, and then we'll move ahead. We know nothing. 
We can't understand it. I'll tell you the truth. I don't understand why we have the whole story of the party at the beginning of the Megillah at all. It's such lavish detail. The king throws parties. You know what? Kings throw parties. Hooray. Good for them. I don't care what fabrics they use. I don't care what utensils they use. That's not Bible worthy. I remember going to those those mansions in Newport, Rhode Island one summer and, and you know, I got, I got the, all the great tours. You have to pay money to... Why do we have to give them money? But anyway, you have to you give them money and then these docents were great. There was one who was unusually passionate. I'm the wrong guy to have in a room uh, on a tour like this. And she was going on about how they have this particular family has 76 sets of silverware. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking they don't even need dairy, meat, car, Pesach. What do you need all those silverware for? And she took that as a sign of pride. So I... I didn't do it in any you know, derisive way, but I just was curious. I said, was this family or any other family, were they involved in any philanthropy at all? Right? Like, it's fine. If they, rich people are allowed to live rich lifestyles, I have no qualms with that. But are they at least also using their skillions of dollars that they got from all their monopolies to help somebody else, to fight some disease, to help some impoverished people in somewhere else? And she got... Uh, it wasn't the right question to ask. She... she uh, got very, very, very defensive about the whole thing. I guess the answer was no. That was what I derived from all of that. And and that was the depressing part of the story. But in the meantime, so I'm fine, even though it was depressing to me, but I understand why in a tour of a mansion of Newport, I'm going to hear this kind of stuff. But when I open up a Tanakh, I don't care what the king, that he's using different gold utensils to serve wine. Good for him, of course. That's what kings do. Why do I need a whole chapter in the Bible for that? The only thing that mattered, I thought, in chapter one, was that by the end of the story, Vashti is gone, and now there's a job opening, and that Esther is going to fill it. So I'll tell you what I would do if I were writing the Megillah. I would just tell you, once upon a time, there was a king, Ahasuerus of Persia. He needed a wife. His advisors said, why don't you have a beauty contest? I don't think we would miss chapter one at all. Right? That's weird. I don't like erasing chapters in Tanakh. I, I, I don't want to do that. I'll tell you another chapter I would erase. You would erase this too. I'm sure I'm, uh, we, we're not really going to erase it. The last chapter. That's even stranger than the first. Okay, chapter 9, which is the second to last chapter, is the climax of the book. The Jews fight for their lives. Esther comes and buys another day of the, for the Jews in Shushan to defend themselves. The Jews win. They celebrate. The people in unwalled cities now will celebrate on the 14th. And the people in walled cities will celebrate on the 15th. Here are the mitzvot. It is now codified into, as a holiday because Haman lost. The end. And then I just picture the sun going down with Mordechai and Esther looking over the palace balcony. Right? That's what I'm expecting to be the end of the story because that's what I thought the end of the story was. And then chapter 10 opens up and King Akashverosh taxed all the people. Now, kings tax people. This is not surprising. But again, what in the world is it doing in my biblical story? I'm, life does go on. But... Don't stop, don't put, don't do that to me. It's like we have this happy ending. That's the way it's gotta be. End it. That's what makes this story so strange. Like there are just too many weird things all together here. We don't know why Mordecai refuses to bow. It just sounds like he's defying the king, but why should that, why should he do that? And we don't know why the party is there at all. We don't know why the tax is there at all. And finally, so even though these questions have always nagged me, I never dealt with them, and that's why I had whatever I had on my computer file at the beginning of that semester in 97. Then I read this article. The article, now I can give him credit, was by somebody named Rabbi David Henschka. 
It's a hard name to spell, but in the meantime, Henschka, that's his last name. He wrote this 12 to 14 page article, however long it was. And he said, he wasn't talking to me specifically, but boy, did I take it personally. <laughs> he said, we're all reading the story wrong. The reason why I have all these questions is because I'm, I'm missing the elephant on the sofa. It's right there. It's in every verse all over the place. And we're all missing it. So that's weird. You know, Miggy Lattice there is as familiar as it goes. What in the world, what elephant on the sofa is missing over here? And he says that our problem is that very often, I'm paraphrasing him severely. I'm, this is already my language, but I wouldn't be here without him. Like he, He's the one who just made me realize, okay, pull off the blinders. It's all right here and now it's easy. The problem is that I was taught, maybe you were taught different, that the story is basically about how Mordechai, Esther, and the Jewish people united, gathered their forces against the wicked Haman and his forces. And Baruch Hashem, we won with personal heroism of Esther along the way. Good. If you think that that is the story, then the whole Megillah makes zero sense. Because then you don't understand why there is a party. You don't understand why the king is taxing the people at the end. You don't understand most features of the story. And you have to just make things up. Hmm? The main character of the story is none of those people. The main character of the story by far and in a very massive way is the king. Ahasuerus is not just some bumbling drunk fool like you normally think of him. He is the story. To a crazy degree. It's all about his power and glory. And how the entire world plays on his stage. And think about, think about a few of the details. They all fit this very nicely. But here's just a couple of them. Okay, Esther's moment of heroism comes in. Mordecai says, Esther, that's it. You've been married to him for five years. The Jews are, were all being threatened to death. This is your moment to go in and tell the king to help us out here a little bit and repeal the decree. And Esther's heroic response is, Not only no, she's like, are you crazy, cousin Mordechai? My husband will kill me. I haven't been called for 30 days. I'm risking my life to go in there. I can't just walk in and talk to my husband. I can't even walk in to talk to my husband about saving the entire Jewish people. That's not possible, she says. And Mordechai flips out on her. She backs off and goes in. But that's pretty telling. Here's Esther, who is, last check, a queen... She can move all the different directions, as many spaces as she wants. She's a powerful piece on the board. But she's nothing next to the king. And by the way, in case you missed that, Vashti, who also was a queen, is out of the story by chapter 1. Esther's predecessor is gone because she crossed Achashverosh. Done. Anybody who gets on his bad side is finished. And Esther knows that. Yeah. Except where you're going doesn't explain why Achashverosh couldn't change his decree. If he was such an absolute ruler, he could certainly change his decree. Your question is excellent, and that's already, your, as usual, you're a couple steps ahead of me. First, and but, but, oh boy, that's an important detail in this whole saga. There are many important details. Because I thought it was a political story showing how Jews can come into power, can utilize, how one can utilize political power. You're right, and that's... All of these things are part of it. And even when I told you what I thought the story was, that it's the Jews against Haman and his forces, that's obviously there too. But it's not the big story in this Megillah. The big story is the king. So Esther, you realize how meaningless her position is. You want another good example? I love it every year, and I'm going to love it this year, even though I've been giving the shiur for a little while. 
when in chapter 6, Haman thinks that the king wants to honor him, but it turns out that he wants to honor Mordechai, and then Haman has to parade Mordechai around the city, and we're like, yes, down with you, Haman. Mordechai is on the rise. This is awesome. He's being paraded. We're cheering our heads off in our seats as the Megillah is being read, right? Okay, how meaningless is this parade? Guess what's going to happen to Mordechai tomorrow in the Megillah? He's still going to be killed. Because of the king's decree, he's still going to be killed. It's not the next day, but within the year, he's dead. Who cares about the parade? Here we are cheering our heads off. But it is utterly meaningless. Because Ahasuerus' decree is still over Mordechai's head. And Mordechai knows that. The Talmud sets up that Mordechai, right after the parade, just took off the royal clothing that he had been wearing and put on his sackcloth again. It's not in the text, but I'm sure that that's right. Mordechai knows which way is up. He knows that he's going to die. Who cares about the parade is utterly meaningless. Best example. I can come up with lots of best examples, but here's one best example. Okay. What is the Jewish reaction when Haman is killed at the end of chapter 7? Haman is our arch enemy, after all. What's the Jewish reaction to the death of our arch enemy, the one who wants to have us all killed in the Megillah? The Jewish reaction. Huh? I would expect some cheering and rejoicing, right? Uh, that's, I'm waiting for that, too. But there is a very deafening silence in the Megillah. In fact, the Jews do not cheer nor rejoice. The only person whose mood changes at all when Haman is killed is the kings. That's how chapter 7 ends. That the, the, the king felt calmer after that. The king was very agitated that Haman was going to hurt his wife. Kill him! And after he's killed, okay, oh, whew, I feel much better. The Jews aren't happy. In fact, the Jews don't care. But the Jews... It wasn't yeah. necessarily publicized. Uh, public it hanging. hanged again uh, with all his sons in the public square. So maybe they didn't know. M- maybe. But there's a better reason. When did the Jews rejoice in the Megillah? They rejoice in the next chapter. The verse that we all like, isn't after Haman is killed. When do they start getting all happy in chapter 8? After Mordechai has the king's ring. Because that matters. If you have the king's ring in your hand, you're in good shape. Because that's the thing that matters in the Megillah. Not Haman, not Esther, not Mordechai, not the Jews, not the bad guys. That ring is everything. When Mordechai has the ring, and now he can issue a decree to help the Jews protect themselves, now the Jews are like, oh, Baruch Hashem. They can't say Baruch Hashem in the Megillah because God's name is not here. But that's what they're thinking. They're, 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 all of a sudden, something matters. It's crazy to realize the magnitude of Ahasuerus' not just power, but its overwhelming power. He is the character who makes and breaks people. So even at the end of the Megillah, by the way, the fact that Esther and Mordechai are on top, well, their predecessors, you know what happened to them, Vashti and Haman, are long gone. We all know that even though at the moment things are smiling on the Jews, one drop of a hat... And that's it. We could be in, if there were a chapter 11, if somebody else shows up with a big bribe, we could be in trouble all over again. No matter that we have a queen and, and head advisor over there. There's no safety whatsoever as long as Ahasuerus Rosh is in charge. And now we can start understanding why the Megillah begins with the king's power and glory and ends with the king's power and glory. That's not irrelevant details. Hey, what's, who cares about all the fabrics and the gold and the silver and the taxes? No. That's the story. It's extremely important to the Megillah. It's not a trivial detail. It's, it seems weird in terms of the conflicts between the Jews and 
Haman. Okay, so now let's take that one step deeper, and then we can start getting to David's question, which is deeper still. All right, so now I like statistics. I'm sure you've heard some from me in the past, and I'm sure you may yet hear a couple before it's done. So God's name appears zero times. That's an important statistic, and we haven't explained why. Well, how about the king in the Megillah, Hamelech? That word appears some 200 times in the Megillah. And when you think about the fact that the Megillah is a total of 167 verses long, well, if you're a math major, you realize that means that there's on average more than one reference to the king per verse. That's a lot of references. It's almost, it's, it, it's to a crazy degree. Listen to the, you don't even have to pay attention to the meaning. Listen when the Megillah reader is reading it. And just listen for the word Melech and Malchut and all of that. I'll give you one example. When Esther is about to go into the throne room at the beginning of chapter 5, right? You don't even have to understand the Hebrew, but it helps too. Okay? So the summary is that she has been fasting for three days. The people are fasting. She's going to courageously go into the throne room and so on. Here's how the verse reads. It's not in the source sheet. I'm not even done with verse 1. And that was six references to kings and kingship. Now imagine the whole Megillah sounding like that because it does. And now you can give a really important answer to why God's name doesn't appear. Because Achashverosh is playing God's role in the Megillah. In any other biblical book, God's name is all over the place, as well it should be. But in this book, Achashverosh has taken God's role away from God. He's the one on whose stage everybody rises and falls. He's the one in charge, to an absolute degree. He's not just more powerful than the next guy. He, nobody else matters next to him. Just like nobody matters next to God. And... Then you start realizing that not only does Achashverosh replace God, which is a terrible thing, your heart should be broken already, but his palace replaces the Beit HaMikdash. Huh? His palace replaces the temple in Jerusalem. It's eclipsing God's glory. Example, if you ask the prophet Isaiah, what's your ultimate dream? Well, you could just go to the UN wall, right? And say, you know, all the nations of the world are going to come flooding to Jerusalem and they're going to accept religious morality and there's going to be universal harmony. That's what we want. And instead, our curtains open up in the Megillah and all the nations of the world and all the dignitaries are flooding to see the glory of the king in Shushan. So as far as Achashverosh is concerned, he's just a regular emperor making a mighty big party because he can but to us, the religious re- Jewish readers of the Megillah, we're like, wait a second, this is not where the center of activity should be. It should be over in Jerusalem. And it should be God, not even our king, whose glory is being celebrated. This is scary. Here's a kicker. Uh, okay, so here's the scene. You tell me what I'm describing. All right, so leader of Jewish people is fasting, and all the Jews are fasting also. Leader of Jewish people is about to enter a very perilous situation, encounter in the king's throne room, to plead on behalf of the Jewish people at pains of death. I'm describing Yom Kippur, where the high priest is fasting and all the Jews are fasting too. And he's going to enter the Holy of Holies, God's throne room, to plead on behalf of the Jewish people at pains of death. If he does this the wrong way, we're going to have another Kohen Gadol takeover midday. Huh? How do I get what? Huh? It's really interesting. It's amazing, isn't it? It's so compelling. Once you have this, it's hard so to go back. Just one 
David Hanschka got my ball rolling. Since then, I've read a lot of things. It's not just him anymore. But he's a pro. Okay. He's a scholar who opened my eyes. The, the analogy that I give, a bunch of us are bespectacled in addition to me. I have awful eyesight, thank God. Really awful. It's terrible. Footnotes have something to do with it, but I'm sure some of it is just, you know, it was bound to happen. So how many thousands of times did I have to put up with the ophthalmologist going, you know, what's clearer, A or B, you know? <laughs> All you glasses people know what I'm talking about. Right? So I've done this thousands of times. And so that's what most learning is like. Learning is when you read a new book or a new article or a new commentary, you're going to get a few new insights. They're like, oh, now I see a little more clearly than I did before yesterday. This article was like laser surgery. When I realized, holy moly, I just had it entirely wrong. I was seeing such blur, and all of a sudden it's like, oh my goodness! It's what he's saying is all in the. It's all here. It's so compelling, right? And so that's why I read it a second time and realized, okay, just don't even try to fix what I had. It's never going to work. Just build off of this. So this year is, you know, as many years later, it's building off of that original piece. And I'm sorry, so what was the name again? David Henschka. In Hebrew, <laughs> this is okay. the easy way. Hey, nun, shin, kuf, hey. And in English, I don't know, whatever. H-E-N-S-C-H-K-E, something like that. I don't know, Henschka. Well, bless him because... Uh, he's a rabbi. He's a, he's a, he, his field is much more Mishnah than Tanakh, but okay, he says something very good about Tanakh on this day. And so I'm very happy that he did what he did. So why is it more common to, to like, you call this what you didn't learn in day school? Why is it more common what we do learn in day school? The problem with day, with day school education in a nutshell for this issue, I mean, there are different problems, but the one that fails us most in the Megillah is that um, the way to learn Midrash is to learn the biblical text and then read outward into the Midrash. What happens in the Megillah is that we read the Midrash and impose it onto the text. So the idol around Haman's neck is a banner example of that, but there are, there are a lot of them in this particular case. If you go backwards then you simply start to see the Midrashim in the text. And when somebody says, but none of that's here, suddenly you have nothing. You don't even know what the Megillah is about. If you read the Megillah and then look outward, you realize the Midrash totally has it. Totally. I've been sprinkling some in just today, and then hopefully I'll have a couple more before it's over. But this is a particularly good example of that, where you see that the throne room of Achashverosh is the new Holy of Holies. Where Sarah is going to risk her life fasting while all the Jews are fasting, and she's going to plead on behalf of the Jewish people at pains of death, and she knows it's at pains of death. The parallels are eerie, and that's when you start to realize that Achashverosh is not just a powerful emperor; he is eclipsing God, and his his palace is eclipsing eclipsing the Beit Hamikdash. Now you can appreciate all the midrashim getting to Beverly's point that he was using the utensils of the Beit Hamikdash. There are certain traditions. I'm sure we might have some traditions in this building that read the verse, the Kelim Michelim Shanim, to the turn of to the tune of lamentations. Right? That there's something very sad. He was using the utensils of the Beit Hamikdash. No, he wasn't. He was using royal utensils. He, he had 76 sets of silverware, and I'm sure even more. That's all he had. He wasn't using the utensils of the Beit HaMikdash. The Beit HaMikdash utensils were already returned to the Jews by Cyrus the Great before the Purim story, and the sages knew that. But what they have their finger on is not a literal historical point. They're trying to make the point that Achashverosh's party eclipses the Beit HaMikdash. They talk about how he was wearing the priestly garb at this party. No, he was not. He was wearing whatever royal Persian people wore. But... In the Midrashic mind, they understand very well. Instead of the high priest's glory and splendor in Jerusalem, we're putting up with this garbage. 
And that brings us to the irony. Now, now we're finally getting ready to start talking to David. The irony of the Megillah is that Achashverosh, all powerful as he is, as much as he eclipses God and as much as his palace eclipses the Ben Hamikdash, the temple, he's a drunk, bumbling fool, right? He's not the sort of guy you want dominating the globe, right? What we do know about him is exactly the kicker of what the Megillah is trying to do. He controls the entire empire, and Vashti doesn't listen to him. When he wakes, sobers up in the morning after Vashti is gone. Um, the way the Megillah describes it is he remembered Vashti and what was decreed upon her. Now, your freshman writing teacher, or hopefully even your sixth grade writing teacher, would say, what do you mean, what was decreed on her? What it should say is, what he decreed on her. It's his decree. This wasn't some, What's up with the passive verb over here? But even the, the narrator sets up Achashverosh in this particular light. Mordechai saves the king's life. What's Mordechai's reward in chapter 2? For saving the king's life. And the king knew about it. What was his reward? Goes to the parade. Well, four chapters later, right? That's the whole point. Years later, the, the answer is nothing. It gets written in a book, and then miraculously the king has insomnia years later, and that really moves the story along. Nothing. The very next verse, Haman gets promoted to second in the kingdom. For what reason? Nothing in the text, but the answer is because the king wants it. Right? The king is unbelievably, he's, I would say, amoral is the right word. Haman is immoral. He's evil. He's the real, you know, he's the evil guy. I have nothing more to say about him than that. He's a very one-dimensional character. Achashverosh is somebody who's amoral. He doesn't reward Mordechai for saving his life, and then he promotes the wicked Haman. And then we can start appreciating this great Midrash, going back to Beverly's point. You know, in chapter 7, when Achashverosh, finally Esther at the second party, is about to reveal her identity and says, my people are in grave danger. And Achashverosh says, who dares to do this thing? And Esther goes, Haman. And we're all like, yeah, go down Haman. And within a couple of verses, he's dead. It's all good, right? Well, there's one Midrash. It's in Tractate Megillah, because that's where all this good stuff is. And Tractate Megillah says, boy, have I been doing this all outside. Wow, look at me. We're all the way on source 17. But I've been talking about all these other sources that we didn't read inside. I get very excited about this year. What can I tell you? And I know the source is better than average. So, source 17. Esther said, the adversary and enemy this is this evil Haman. That's the verse that's in the Tanakh, in the Bible. Rabbi Elazar said, this informs us that she was pointing to Achashverosh. And an angel came and pushed her hand so as to point to Haman. I like these colorful midrashim. So the, the picture is that she's, when Achashverosh said, who dares to do this? Esther started to point in Achashverosh's direction, and that would have meant her life. So an angel swoops into the picture, saves the day, and bumps her hand over to point to Haman. Okay, very colorful. What's this Talmudic passage saying? Who is the real culprit of the Megillah? It's not Haman. All Achashverosh had to do, all he had to do back in chapter 3, when Haman shows up with 10,000 Kikar Kesef, which is a it's, a, it's a lot of money, which obviously is what tipped his scale. All he had to do is say, Haman, that's a lot of money, but sorry, we don't commit genocide in my empire. Go away. In fact, you're fired. That would have been the end of the story. It's like, whoa, 10,000 Kikar Kesef. See, the problem, with, the problem with us readers thousands of years after the events, we have no idea what that is. To me, it sounds like $10,000, which, honestly, sounds like a lot of money. But it doesn't sound like a lot of money for a king. 
right? 10,000 Tikar Kesef, so now we have documents, we can actually narrow this down. The entire tax revenue of the Persian Empire in this period was about 17,000 Kikar Kesef. So he's, Haman is offering, with this one bribe, 58% of the annual tax revenue of the empire. That's a lot of money, even for a king. So if Achashverosh is thinking, well, you know, the Jews pay taxes. Taxes, here. There ain't that, that many Jews in the empire. You're getting a lot more money this way. Achashverosh is like, oh, well, in that case, here's a ring, run along, do what you want, l'chaim. That's what he does, right? He, that's the point that this Gemara is saying. When Esther wanted to point her finger, what, what she wants to say is what the Megillah is screaming out loud. Yes, Haman is evil, but Achashverosh was the enabler. Money was more important to him than the entire Jewish people. And economic interests prevailed because he is amoral. And that's what Achashverosh is all about. The sages also say, please don't be fooled by the happy ending. Achashverosh is not a reformed person who now is better. He's no better at the end than he was at the beginning. At the beginning, it served his interest to take a bribe from Haman and to sell the Jews to genocide. In the end, he liked Esther, so he hanged Haman and allowed the Jews to protect themselves. But it's not that, oh, wow, now I'm feeling much more moral in my older age. No, he's not. And so the sages say that very bluntly in source number 18. This is Achashverosh. This means that he persisted in his wickedness from beginning to end. They're not fooled. He's a self-serving, amoral person. If it happens that it helps him to serve the Jews, great. And that's good for us. And if it helps him to give a ring over to Haman, okay, that's exactly how he operates. So now we can understand why Mordechai didn't bow. Because Mordechai knows all of these things. Mordechai not bowing to Haman, it has nothing to do with idol around Haman's neck. There are two layers of this Megillah. And we need to understand both layers. One layer is easy to see, and that's the layer that we've known since we were little kids. This layer, which I think is a more important layer, is very much here also. Mordechai has two battles to fight in this story. One is against Haman, the one that we all know about. Haman is really evil. Rav Yaakov Maidan, one of the Rashi Yeshivat, Yeshivat Haaretzion, gives the analogy, let's say in 1933 when Hitler starts his parades. You can imagine some person with moral courage, knowing that he's going to die and probably in a messy way, to protest, to get up in the middle of the parade and protest. He said, this is wrong, this is evil. I might die for this, but I'm going to protest because this is pure evil. Rav Yaakov Maidan imagines that that's what Mordechai is doing in this story. He sees Haman as the Amalek figure. This guy is so evil. And everybody's bowing because that's what the king wants. You know what? I'm not going to do it. Even if I'm going to die. This guy is bad. And showing any respect to this kind of evil is bad for the world. That's one layer of battle in this Megillah. Mordechai is against Haman. I don't blame him one bit. But the other layer is what the text is hitting us over the head with a hammer and we're ignoring it. We go all the way back to verse number four. All the king's courtiers in the palace gate knelt and bowed low to Haman, for such was the king's order concerning him. But Mordechai would not kneel or bow low. Then the king's courtiers who were in the palace gate said to Mordechai, Why do you disobey the king's order? It's not about Haman. It's about the king. It's about the king. Mordechai realizes when the king does nothing to him after saving the king's life, and then he promotes this evil man. Woe unto the world. 
Achashverosh doesn't hate the Jews. He couldn't care less about us. You know, for him, it's all about economic factors and political factors. If it serves his purposes, he's happy with us. If it doesn't, then goodbye. Haman is evil. Haman hates us. Haman represents Amalek. He's somebody who has an absolute animosity toward the people of Israel. Yeah, sorry, Ruth. Well, he wants Esther. First of all, the, the immediate threat is Haman, right? We need to stop Haman. You can't change Achashverosh, but right now there's an emergency. Haman is threatening our lives. We need that to stop. And Achashverosh has the power. That's, that's what he's doing, right? In other words, he wants Esther to use whatever influence she has to get on in there and get Achashverosh to pull out the decree. No? So it's okay for Esther to sleep with the king. It is. This bag got more this amoral guy. I have a really hard time with that. With which, uh, bring it on, that's fine, but but tell me why. Given that I would like to think the best of everyone and that I would like to think of Akashvera, she's just vulnerable and challenged politically and in terms of power and maintaining his power and not attribute to him... um, Amoral, you know that he, he's really corrupt and amoral and all of that. He's not even corrupt. He's just amoral. All right. <laughs> right. Uh, um, I, I just have a hard time. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. I don't mean to rub you emotionally the wrong way, and, and I understand. Like, I also like seeing the good in people. But but what I would say is that Achashverosh is. How do you explain that he's willing to accept a bribe and allow genocide in his empire? He says, "There's a people." Haman says, "There's a people that you don't, you don't, you don't want around anymore." It's not clear, incidentally, that he even knows that it's the Jewish people. That is not clear. Right. That, that's in, it's not clear that he. But to him, it doesn't matter. Ten thousand kikar kesef. That is so much money, even for a king. Have a ring. Go kill whoever you need to kill. You could try to. This might be normal for the tone of the times, but I think that there is a problem with that. I think you, that part, I think you would agree, right? Even you know, the whole point is that I'm not. Achashverosh is nothing against the Jewish people, zero. He simply is a self-serving individual to the extreme, and if that means selling out a nation to genocide, he will accept that. He will tolerate that. That is, and to my mind, an amoral position. It's not even immoral. Like Haman, Haman is evil. He's destructive. He wants to kill the Jewish people. So let's bring this point back. Mordechai is protesting Achashverosh. He says, if Achashverosh can do this, if he can promote a Haman, woe unto the world. The sages capture both layers in source number 19. Right after Haman and Achashverosh sealed the deal and Haman sent out the decrees, so now Mordechai knows that the Jews are slated for destruction. When Mordechai knew all that was done, what was his cry? Rav said, he said, Haman has raised himself above Achashverosh. Oh no, Achashverosh was basically benign. He didn't want to kill us. But now Haman has the ring. He's going to kill us. This is terrible. Haman is triumphing. The neutral Achashverosh has been defeated by evil Haman. And then Shmuel said, the upper king has prevailed over the lower king. Who is the upper king? Who's the king above? God. God. And who's the lower king? Achashverosh. So God has triumphed over Achashverosh. Oh no. Well, that would have been good. So Rashi quickly jumps in and says, okay, if you have Talmudic experience, you know what Shmuel is saying. 
What was Mordechai crying? Oh no, Achashverosh has defeated God. It's a euphemism. But the sages won't say that. So they say that the upper king defeated the lower king. And then Rashi jumps in and has to say the intent, which is the other way around. Oh no, Achashverosh is defeating God. Those are the two layers of the Megillah. You have the surface layer, which is Mordechai against Haman, the evil of Haman. But you have this macro layer that we've been talking about tonight, where Mordechai is saying, oh my goodness, God's whole glory and kingdom are being defeated by Achashverosh. This amoral king is eclipsing God. Instead of the nations of the world flooding to Jerusalem, they're flooding to Shushan. There's no morality in this king. The Megillah doesn't just protest Haman and Achashverosh for being immoral and amoral, respectively. They present an alternative, namely, the moral backbone of Mordechai, Esther, and the Jewish people, who are fabulous in this Megillah. They're so good. These are people with absolute integrity, with backbone, right? The fact that Mordechai is going to defy them, knowing that he will probably die. But he's like, I can't, I can't tolerate this. This is so, that, that's how bad this situation is. The fact that the Jewish people rally around him and unite and stay together and don't plunder their enemies, even, even given that, just because it was a purely, pure war of self-defense, that sets out the positive agenda, that there is a, there's an alternative to the world of Achashverosh, and there's certainly an alternative to the world of Haman. It's the world represented by Mordechai and Esther and the Jewish people in the Megillah. And of course, the prayer of the temple is that one day the world will adopt that moral code instead of the code of Achashverosh and certainly that of Haman. And that brings us to the nature of Purim. The most important verse in the whole Megillah is that tax at the end. Because that cripples the whole point. If you didn't have the tax, then we'd end on happily ever after at the end. The whole point of Megillah is that it's not happily ever after at the end. Purim we celebrate for one thing and one thing only. And the Megillah says it. It's because we're not dead. Haman failed to kill us all. He tried, but he didn't succeed, and we're very, very grateful for that. But, if you're keeping score, the Jews are no better off at the end of the Megillah than they were at the very beginning. They're just no worse off. Haman tried to make it a lot worse. Thank God was unsuccessful, and that's why we have our holiday, and the, and the Megillah makes that perfectly clear. But we're also no better off. We're just still in Achashverosh's land. He's still taxing the people. His power and glory are as shiny as they were at the beginning of the Megillah. And God's glory is still nowhere in the Megillah. It's still hidden. It's still being eclipsed by Achashverosh. And this sets up a halakhic man question. Why we don't say Hallel on Purim? Why don't we say Hallel on Purim? It's a good holiday. We're thrilled. We say Hallel on other rabbinic holidays like Hanukkah or Yom Ha'atzma'ut. Because there's no God to be glory, glory to. So that's the fundamental answer. Huh? Huh? Oh, so very good. So we're all, we're just rattling off the whole Talmud. You're all very good. The Talmud offers three answers, all in Masachet Megillah. The first one is it happened in Chutzlar. It happened outside of the land of Israel. The Talmud itself immediately objects to the obvious, which is so did Pesach, so did Shavuot, so did Sukkot. We say Hallel then. So the Talmud rejects that answer, but it's there. It's right on the books. Then they say, well, reading the Megillah is like Hallel, which is very nice, but no, it's not. It's a story. We could easily accomplish both. We could say the Megillah, stay in shul for three more minutes, do the Hallel. You don't even need to sing as much as you usually do on Rosh Chodesh. It would be fine. And then it comes the third answer, which is the, the, you know, the whole upshot of this shiur, source number 20. Ravah said, 
There is good reason, it's, it's what Susan was just saying, that in the case of the Exodus from Egypt, because it says in the Hallel, praise, O servants of the Lord, who are no longer servants of Paro. When the Exodus from Egypt, we were free. We used to be slaves of Paro, and now we're not slaves of Paro, and now we're servants of God. Then we could praise God with a whole heart. But can we say in this case, praise servants of the Lord and not servants of Achashverosh? We are still servants of Achashverosh. Chapter 10 is there, and it's there for a reason. We're still servants of Ahasuerus. Nothing has changed. And that means that God's glory is crippled. If God's glory is crippled, we can't sing Hallel. So we celebrate, we read the Megillah, we're thankful to the high heavens for working behind the scenes, and we're thankful, as David said before, for the political heroism of Mordechai, Esther, and the Jewish people, for really doing whatever it took to survive. Without them, I don't know where you and I would be, but... Nowhere, nowhere in this world. I bless them for really doing what needed to be done. That's what makes the holiday what it is. But at the same time, the holiday reminds us that as long as the world is governed by Achashverosh's who are interested in self-interest rather than in morality, new Hamans always will rise. This Haman failed. But as long as you have world leaders like Achashverosh who are more interested in self-serving political and economic variables rather than moral variables, new Hamans are always going to come. The only thing that could change is if world leaders follow the model of Mordechai, Esther, and the Jewish people, symbolized by the Beit HaMikdash. When world leaders understand the morality has to trump all other considerations, there was certainly no political pun intended by that. That's just a word that I like to use. <laughs> really, no, no pun intended. But, but, but in the meantime, when world leaders understand that, then the Hamans of the world are on the run. Right? But until that happens, as long as there's more money on one side than the other or more political gain on one side than the other, well, then this story is just a recurring story in our history. And so the Megillah reminds us not only to stand with Mordechai Esther and the Jewish people in the story, but to remind the rest of the world how vital it is that we need a better leader out there than Achashverosh. On that happy note, I wish you all a wonderful and happy Purim. And I look forward to... Uh, completely having a downer next week with you with the Book of Lamentations. So... (laughs)